The following sermon is from the Westminster Pulpit, extending the worship ministry of Westminster Presbyterian Church, Lancaster, Pennsylvania. We are a local congregation of the Presbyterian Church in America. Please contact us for permission before reproducing this message in any format. This Sunday in a series on First Kings, I noted on the handout that Luther didn't want his congregation shouting unintelligible cries like the priests of Baal. He's referencing the story we have tonight, First Kings 18, as we look at the great confrontation between Baal and his 450 prophets and Yahweh the Lord and his one prophet. In the second half of First Kings 18, I feel like this story is one uh, that that I can I identify with. I don't know if it's just the fact that it's a competition that makes me identify with it. I don't know if it brings back memories of sort of the uh, the hotshot boys on the playground throwing down that gathers the crowd uh, or what it is. But this is a text that I feel like emotionally I can understand when Elijah says, all right, we're having a competition. Here's what's happening. And the people say, that's well spoken. Let's do it. Um, and they're looking forward to seeing who is it, God or Baal. I think maybe it's helpful for us to read this passage thinking of the Israelites uh, really wondering, who is, the, who is God? Is it Yahweh or is it Baal? They didn't necessarily know who was God and what was going to happen. But I want us to see that this text will assure us not only that God is God, not Baal, but this text is also concerned uh, with the character and the nature of Yahweh as opposed to Baal. So let's keep these in mind as we read the text. Let's uh, start verse 20 in 1 Kings 18. So Ahab sent to all the people of Israel and gathered the prophets together at Mount Carmel. And Elijah came near to all the people and said, How long will you go limping between two different opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal, then follow him. And the people did not answer him a word. Then Elijah said to the people, I, even I only, am left a prophet of the Lord, but Baal's prophets are 450 men. Let two bowls be given to us, and let them choose one bowl for themselves and cut it into pieces and lay it on the wood, but put no fire to it. And I will prepare the other bowl and lay it on the wood and put no fire to it. And you call upon the name of your God, and I will call upon the name of the Lord." And the God who answers by fire, he is God. And all the people answered, it is well spoken. Then Elijah said to the prophets of Baal, choose for yourselves one bowl, prepare it first, for you are many, and call upon the name of your God, but put no fire to it. So they took the bowl that was given to them and they prepared it and called on the name of Baal from morning until noon saying, oh, Baal, answer us. But there was no voice and no one answered. And they limped around the altar that they had made. And and at noon, Elijah mocked them, saying, Cry aloud, for he is a god. Either he is musing or relieving himself or on a journey, or perhaps he is asleep and must be awakened. And they cried aloud and cut themselves after their custom with swords and lances until blood gushed out upon them. And as midday passed, they raved on until the time of the offering of the oblation. But there was no voice. No one answered. 
No one paid attention. Then Elijah said to the people, Come near to me. And all the people came near to him. And he repaired the altar of the Lord that had been thrown down. Elijah took twelve stones according to the number of the tribes of the sons of Jacob, to whom the word of the Lord came, saying, Israel shall be your name. And with the stones he built an altar in the name of the Lord, and he made a trench about the altar, as great as would contain two seahs of seed. And he put the wood in order, and he cut the bowl in pieces, and he laid it on the wood. Then he said, Fill four jars with water, and pour it on the burnt offering and on the wood. And then he said, do it a second time. And they did it a second time. And then he said, do it a third time. And they did it a third time. And the water ran around the altar and filled the trench also with water. And at the time of the offering of the oblation, Elijah the prophet came near and said, O Lord, God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known this day that you are God in Israel and that I am your servant and that I have done all these things at your word. Answer me, O Lord, answer me, that this people may know that you, O Lord, are God, and that you have turned their hearts back. Then the fire of the Lord fell and consumed the burnt offering, and the wood, and the stones, and the dust, and it licked up the water that was in the trench. And when all the people saw it, they fell on their faces and said, The Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God. And Elijah said to them, Seize the prophets of Baal. Let not one of them escape. And they seized them, and Elijah brought them down to the brook Kishon and slaughtered him there. And then Elijah said to Ahab, Go up, eat, and drink, for there is the sound of rushing rain. I'm going to stop there. Let's uh, pray as we approach God's word. Lord, thank you that you have given us this text of your word. I pray that you would use your word to help us know you more, to understand who you are and your call to your people. And we pray this in your name. Amen. Here we have a a classic Sunday school story. Most of us probably heard this early in our lives, but I think there's a a danger to looking at classic Sunday school stories, and that is we're used to hearing them by themselves. We're not used to hearing them in context. And so we don't usually question, well, why is this happening now or here? And what's going on? But if you think about all of the bad kings that Israel has had up to this point and how many years the Israelites have been going after other gods and idols, you have to ask the question, why now? Why does God say to Elijah, go throw the gauntlet down with the prophets of Baal now? What's, what's the purpose? Because our God is a God who does things for a reason. We have to begin by understanding Baal's role in the collection of Canaanite gods. So Baal was the storm god or the rain god. He was the god associated with lightning and fire, uh, but also storms with rain, and the one who would bring rain to fer- uh, make the earth fertile and grow. Now if you think back to the context here in 1 Kings 17, when Elijah first shows up in the story, he comes and announces to Ahab, Ahab, there is going to be no rain not even dew on the grass for three years. There's going to be a harsh drought and famine. And this is a punishment on Israel. It's a punishment on Israel for turning away from God, but it's very particular punishment. Baal was the attraction. Baal was the rain god. So what's the punishment? There is going to be no rain, not even dew on the earth. This was also an attack on Baal himself. But 1 Kings 18, which we saw the first part of last week when uh, Dr. York preached, 1 Kings 18 started with the Lord saying in verse 1, Elijah, go show yourself to Ahab because I am going to send rain on the earth. God is going to end this drought and send rain. 
But anyone who is leaning towards Baal worship could easily have interpreted the coming of rain to a victory for Baal. The way they would have interpreted it is, ah, it's taken a while, but finally Baal's back. Baal, Baal, you know, he had to fight with that God who proclaimed a drought. It's taken three years, but Baal's been victorious. See, he brought rain back. And Jezebel and her Baal prophets could easily say, here's rain. Baal, Baal won. And so, in light of Baal and his prophets and Jezebel possibly spinning this as a victory, God, before sending the rain, before sending his promised rain, is going to make it clear on a public national level that God is God alone. And the rain that comes is from God, not from Baal. That's why the story happens here. God also sets up this context in a very specific way so that there could be not a hint or shadow of doubt that God is the one sending the rain here. There's not going to be any doubt that Yahweh wins and Baal loses. And we see it in a number of ways. One is the fact that uh, God tells Elijah to do this on Mount Carmel. Now, Mount Carmel is not central to all Israel. It's in the very top northwest corner of Israel, right next to Tyre and Sidon, where Jezebel's from. God could have said, well, let's have this context on Mount Zion or something like that, but he doesn't. He says Mount Carmel. Why? Mount Carmel was known as a mountain of Baal. We actually have found in archaeology an inscription from the Assyrians which calls Mount Carmel the mountain of Baal. And so... We're going to Baal's home turf, if you will. Baal's the home team, and God's going to beat him on his own ground. Well, then there's the number of the prophets. Elijah says, I, only I, am here as a prophet of the Lord. We know that Elijah's not the only prophet alive. Remember from last week, Dr. York told us that Obadiah had saved a hundred prophets of God in a cave and protected them. The point Elijah's trying to make is there's 450 of you, there's only one of me. So if anyone thinks that this victory is going to come about because the number of prophets or, or the magnitude of the voices or the persuasion of the, of, the, of the number of prophets gathering around and calling on the Lord, it's not that. There's 450 of you. There's one of me. Again, God's at the disadvantage here. And then not only that, but um, Elijah then goes through the ritual of dumping 12 bucketfuls of water all over the altar. The Israelites were not stupid people. They know that water doesn't burn. Elijah's stacking the deck against God so that when God responds, there is no question that this is a divine act. So you see how God is setting up this context in every way to say, I am God, Baal is not, and there's not going to be any room for misinterpretation of either what happens here or of the rain that I'm going to send afterwards. So here's God ready to display his exclusive greatness and his glory. And I just want us briefly to notice three things about the character of this God as he wins this victory. First, I want you to notice the stakes of this challenge. As God gathers uh, all of Israel around, as Elijah summons them to the mountain here, Elijah asks a key question in verse 21. He says this, How long will you go limping between two different opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. If Baal is God, then follow him. Israel has forgotten here that Yahweh claims to be the only God, and there is no room for multiple options. Elijah is accusing Israel of limping between options here. It's a great phrase, isn't it? Stop limping between options. The, the Hebrew 
text actually pictures hopping back and forth between two branches of a tree, or it can be hopping back and forth between two forks in a road. So if you picture someone, you know, they have to choose which fork in the road they're going to take, and they just go bouncing back and forth. That's Israel here. They are not choosing which God they're going to worship. They want to have it all. And really, part of this comes because of the pagan mindset that Israel had adopted. If you were a Canaanite, there's no reason to choose one God over another. Have them all. If you have two gods who are both offering to send rain, both offering to protect you and help you, why not worship them both and get them both on your side? So that's the mindset of a Canaanite. But God is saying, no, no. If, God, if the Lord is God, follow him. If Baal is God, follow him. But when it comes to worship, worship must be exclusive. And those are the stakes of this challenge. It's one or the other. And I think it's important for us to to understand the demand here. Because when we read the prophet's indictment on Israel, I think a lot of times we assume Israel was in this sort of outward, open, deeply wicked and rebellious state. And of course their hearts are in wicked rebellion here. But that often looked like worshiping God, making sacrifices to God, and worshiping Baal and sacrificing to him too. It looked like a both and, not a hatred of Yahweh, but a compromise of trying to do everything. And I think we have to, we have to say, okay, how do we step back into the mindset of what Israel was doing? Because we're not, we don't live in a culture that worships multiple gods at the same time. But I think the New Testament draws this out in a way that's really helpful. Think for a second of the rich young ruler. Remember the story of the rich young ruler who comes to Jesus and says, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus tells him, you must give up your fortune and follow me. And the, the rich man goes away sad. The rich young ruler is in the same place as the Israelites. He was very happy to go to Jesus and find out about the eternal life Jesus offered. He just wanted the security and pleasure of money too. He wanted a both and, not an either or. And I think this is where our hearts can slip into the same trap. The God of Israel, the God who has sent his son Jesus Christ, is God and Savior alone. He is fully sufficient for our security, our help, our happiness, our hope, and he is the exclusive object of our worship. And you know, a lot of times we can find ourselves slipping into a pattern where we come to the pew and we worship God on Sunday. But then we go home throughout the rest of the week and we make decisions. We find comfort. We find happiness in things other than God. And I think it can be very helpful for us to ask some key questions of our hearts. Here are some examples of some questions that can help us understand where are our hearts finding our joy or our hope or our security. Ask yourself things like this. What do I spend the most time thinking about? throughout the week? What occupies my thoughts the most of my time? What do I fear? What am I constantly worried or anxious about? What dominates my fears and my anxieties? On the other hand, what makes me feel confident and happy? What things in life give me the most happiness and joy? What things give me the most happiness and joy? What do I set my heart on or what are my plans or agendas working toward? What am I aiming at? throughout the course of my week and my life? Where do I find security or comfort? What things set me at ease? The answers to these questions will tell us what we're setting our heart on. 
The answers to these questions will tell us what's occupying the space of our hearts. What's giving our heart comfort, security, help, hope, joy? When I find my, you know, my worries arising because my retirement count isn't what it should be, or when I find myself angry and upset because my baseball team lost for the 69th year in a row, it's tough being from Cleveland. Uh, when I find myself focused on and spending all of my time thinking about my next home improvement project or the next thing I'm going to purchase, these things are telling me something about my heart. And they're telling me that my heart is looking to things other than God for joy, for happiness, for security, for hope, for comfort. And these questions are going to reveal where we are limping back and forth between multiple options in our hearts. The fact is we find ourselves in the same place as these Israelites. And so the first thing we need to know about this context is the stakes of this contest. The stakes are this. Yahweh is God alone. He alone is worthy of worship. He alone brings hope, security, comfort, and help. And so we cannot go about this context and say, oh, God's God. Okay, let's move on to the next question. If God is God, He deserves our whole lives, our whole hearts, our whole worship. That's the first thing to notice. Second, notice the drama of this contest. If you're going to follow the drama of this text, and and I I would encourage you to read this text again slowly, imagining yourself what this text looked like in real time. You know, it took us five minutes to read this text. It took place over the course of a whole day. Imagine the drama, but if you're going to follow the drama of this text, you really just need to focus on one word, and it's the word answer. Follow the word answer through this text, and it will highlight what's happening. It starts in verse 21. Elijah uh, issues this challenge, if if Yahweh is God, follow him. If Baal is God, follow him. And you notice what the people do in verse 21? And the people answered him not a word so significant. They, not, they, they, not, they do not answer a single word. And on the one hand, this apathy or this refusal or inability to, to understand the terms that, that Yahweh is, is presenting is maddening. But on the other hand, the people's silence increases the drama because it tells us, I think, that the people really don't know what's going to happen. They don't know where their hearts are, and they also don't know where their hearts should be. They don't know which God is God. What's going to happen? And so they don't answer anything. They don't commit themselves to either side. They just wait and watch. Baal's prophets take the first crack at things. The 450 prophets of Baal whip themselves up into this sweaty, bloody, messy, exhausting frenzy for hour upon hour. But here's the key question. Here's their key prayer. Their key prayer found in verse 26. O Baal, answer us answer us. That's the key prayer. They're looking for a God who will answer them. Hour after hour goes by. But remember this, the people who are watching don't know whether fire is going to fall for heaven or not. We read this text thinking, fire's not coming from heaven. You're praying to a fake God. The people don't know that. The prophets of Baal don't know that. And so imagine yourself for three hours waiting Second by second, not knowing if fire is going to fall from heaven. You know how it was, maybe your, like your fifth birthday, your mom bakes you a cake and, and you sit in front of the oven for all 20 minutes watching your cake rise and waiting for it to be done. And the 20 minutes on the timer seems to take like seven hours to, to, to tick down. 
Imagine yourself here waiting for lightning to fall from the sky. Each second, the anticipation and the tension is such that, that the, the time seems to drag out, and that's what's happening here. They're waiting for an answer, waiting for that answer to come any second now. But there was no voice. No one answered. And so Elijah starts to lob some, some uh, insults in there. I can imagine sort of after three hours, the tension is starting to relax and people are wondering what's happened. And so he's saying, hey, well, you know, Baal's a god. Here, you know, here's what's happening. And it can kind of seem a little odd. Why does Elijah say Baal is a god? Well, he's reminding the people of what Canaanite gods are like. He says, he's a god, a Canaanite god. What do Canaanite gods do? They go to sleep. They go on trips. They need to do everything a human does. So he's saying, if he's a Canaanite god, like all the gods you believe in, you've got a lot of options. He could be gone and you're out of luck. He could be asleep and you need to cry louder. We actually, we actually have a story in Canaanite mythology of Baal's sister coming to look for him in desperate need of help, and he's gone hunting. No luck. So that's what Elijah's saying here is, you know what your gods are like. Better try to, try loud, try to cry louder here. But the climax of the efforts again brings out the word answer. There was no voice. No one answered. No one paid attention. Elijah then calls the people near to him. And he carefully and deliberately rebuilds the altar. And again, as you read the text, I want you to notice how long it takes to describe what Elijah's doing. It's building anticipation and tension. He builds the altar. He lays the wood. He cuts the bowl. He pours the water. He does it again. He does it again. Building up to this tension until Elijah prays the same prayer that the prophets of Baal did to Yahweh. Yahweh, answer me. O Lord, answer. That's his prayer. And the fire of the Lord fell and consumed the offering, the wood, the stones, the dust, the water. Everything is consumed. The Lord answered. You see the key word here, answer. And if you trace the drama, it tells us that God answers and Baal does not. But it also traces why the gods answer. It tells us something about the character of the gods. See, Baal's prophets thought that their God would answer if they got themselves worked up into enough efforts to gain their God's attention. If I do enough, if I run around the altar enough, if I get sweaty enough, if I do enough, if I cut myself enough, if I do enough to impress my God, he'll answer me. Or maybe it's if I can get my God to have compassion on me, if I can, if I can do enough that he'll look down and feel sorry for me, then he'll answer me. The frenetic pace and efforts that leaves these prophets exhausted tells us they are trying to please or to impress or to gain the attention of their God by what they do. Is any of that there with Elijah? No way. Elijah kneels down and just says, God, answer me. And the Lord answers. And this is huge. And this is, uh, I think, a great text and a great thing to notice on the eve of the Reformation because this is very akin to Luther's concern. Luther's concern was his, his spark of the Reformation was as he navigated the system of prayers and penance and monastic life and poverty and fasting, he constantly wondered, am I doing enough to please God or not? Is God impressed with me? Is God going to accept me? Or is this not enough? That's a similar mindset. But here we have, here we have the answer to the question, what is it that gives us assurance of God's love? and acceptance. What is this that gives us assurance that God hears our prayers and answers us? It has nothing to do with our efforts, nothing to do with our frenetic efforts to impress him or please him. 
On the other hand, it is the covenant relationship that God has established with his people. It's the covenant relationship. You see how Elijah went back to the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel. He's going back to God's work, to God's calling, and God's relationship that he made with his people and say, God, you have made a relationship, a covenant relationship with your people. And that gives Elijah his assurance. For us, of course, that relationship is now founded in Jesus Christ, the blood of his Son, our Savior. And it's a trust in the power and promises of God's word where he has said that if we come to him in his name, he will answer us. God's people can pray with a confidence and an assurance and a peace that is impossible if you are stuck wondering if your God is pleased with you or mad at you, wondering if you've done enough or not to gain his intention. Elijah prayed and God answered. That tells us that God is God, but it also tells us that our God is one who has come to us and forged a relationship with us based on his covenant, based on his promise, and then based on the blood of his son, not based on what we do. And we see that here in how these men pray. Well, finally, notice the surprising theme of this passage. The surprising theme of this passage. If you were to ask anyone, what's the theme of Elijah versus the prophets of Baal? You know, things that come to mind are things like fire, judgment, God wins, Baal loses. Uh, The death of 450 prophets of Baal. It's, It's a passage of judgment. It's a passage of God's victory. And that's true. But I think that that is not the primary point that God is trying to make here. That's not the primary thing God is doing here. This passage is primarily about God's grace and mercy to his people. And we see this all throughout this passage. First, ask yourself this question. What do God's people deserve here? What do God's people, what does Israel deserve? They're limping back and forth between God and Baal, worshiping idols, following Jezebel and Ahab. If this passage were about judgment and justice, what should have happened? God's fire should have fallen from heaven, but it should have fallen on the people of Israel, not on the offering on the altar. That's what would happen if this was about justice. But God doesn't do that. Instead, instead of consuming his people, God comes and offers to perform a miracle in front of them in order to lure them back to worshiping him. Remember how in the New Testament the Jews come to Jesus and demand a sign? They want to see a a miracle that will demonstrate that he's divine? Or think about how the rich man in hell asks Lazarus, Uh, to rise from the dead to go warn his brothers about God. And in both cases, Jesus says, no, I'm not doing a miracle because my word should be enough. God could have said the same thing here. My people have my word. But instead, God graciously comes to him and says, okay, Israel, you're running from me. I am going to do something stunning. I am going to perform a dramatic miracle before your eyes to woo you back to myself. This is... This is the the heart-stopping God coming and wooing his rebellious, wayward people back to him with a stunning miracle. That's the purpose of this event. And we know it because it's exactly what Elijah prays in verse 37. Look Look at verse 37. He says, Answer me, O Lord, answer me that this people may know that you are God, and what? And that you have turned their hearts back to me. Why does he want God to answer him? That the people may know that he is God and that he has come to turn their hearts back. 
The point of the prayer is that God would that God would demonstrate who he is, show who he is, and so draw his people back to himself. God is coming in fire here, not in judgment alone, although he certainly is going to judge Baal's prophets, but primarily to bring his people back to himself. I think this is reinforced by the text in verse 31 also when it, when it describes what Elijah is doing. It talks about rebuilding the altar with 12 stones representing the 12 tribes of Israel. To whom the Lord of the uh, the word of the Lord came, it says, saying, "Israel shall be your name." By rehearsing the history of God naming Israel and calling them His, the text is reminding us that Israel's identity was graciously given to them by God Himself. God called them. God named them. They're His people. God is their covenant God, and it's giving that as the groundwork of this whole event so that we'll understand that this is God coming and saying, I named you, you are mine. Come back to me. That's what's happening in, the, in there, in this text. And in even, I think if we go a step deeper, the sacrifice on the altar here, the sacrifice that God consumes is also a summons to remember who Israel is and demonstrate proper worship. And if we think back to Leviticus, when God brings Israel out of Egypt and tells them, build a tabernacle so that you can worship me. Leviticus 9 tells us that the first time they offer sacrifice at the tabernacle, what happens? Fire falls from heaven and consumes the altar, showing that God has accepted his people and accepts their worship and is identifying them as his people. And I think right here we have an implication again that if these people will come back to him, he is accepting true worship. He's accepting them as their people, as his people, if they will turn and worship him. I think if you want to look at a broader level, you could even back up one step further and say, why is this happening? It's happening because God is about to send rain. Why in the world is God sending rain? Did the people repent? No, people haven't repented. But God in his grace and his mercy is saying, I have punished you for three years, but I am not going to be angry with you forever. I am going to come and have grace and mercy and woo you back to me. I want to end by just sharing a brief story that I think backs this just, just helps us understand this mindset here is God yes punishing the prophets of Baal but his great desire is to turn his people back to him that they may be his Patricia St. John shares a story in one of her books for children on the character of God she shares a story of a man whose troubled teen years led him to ignore his parents more and more finding the bar more attractive than his home he accumulated debt, and so in his late teens, he went back home to ask his parents for money to repay his debts. But when he went home, he was too embarrassed to ask his parents for money. He knew where his dad kept the money, so instead of asking, he stole the money. After stealing the money, he was too embarrassed to go back home again, and he left home, and his parents lost track of him. His parents knew nothing about him from that point on, they didn't know about his homelessness. They didn't know about the prison sentence that he served. They didn't know the depths that he had fallen into. But while in prison, this man thought about home again and again. And when his term in prison was up, he determined that he would go home and see his parents again. But as he decided to do this, he realized, what right do I have to see my parents? What right do I have to even think that my parents would want to see me? after all that I've done to him. So he decided to write them a letter. And the letter said this, I know it is unreasonable for me to think that you would want to see me again. 
so it's up to you. I'm going to come by our road on Thursday morning. If you want to see me again, hang a white handkerchief on the porch. If it, was the, if it is there, I will come. If it is not, I will go away and I will not bother you ever again. On Thursday morning, the young man approached the street that he lived on and he was too nervous to look up and look at the house. So he stood there for several minutes before finally looking up. And when he looked up, he just stopped and he stared. He looked at the house. Every window was flying, every bedsheet, every towel, every curtain, every tablecloth, every pillowcase, every handkerchief and napkin. The roof was lined with curtains that had been taken out of the dining room window. You see, the parents were not taking any chances. They were going to make a dramatic statement that we want you back, and there is going to be no doubt about it. I think that's what this text is ultimately about. The Lord is going to make a dramatic and powerful display that he is God. Why? To lure his people back to him. To say, I am God and I am God alone. Worship me. Be my people. Come back to me. It's a summons for Israel back to their covenant that was founded in Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. For you and me, it's a summons back to the cross. Back to the dead and risen Savior, the Son of God, through whom we have salvation. So I pray that this text, that this text will give us some good reformation reminders. Reminders of the exclusive claim that our glorious God lays on our hearts and our lives. But that demand, that that demand comes in the context of a relationship that gives us confidence and assurance in the love of our Savior, not a fear or trembling or wondering if we could ever please him. For this is the God that summons us back to him through Jesus Christ, even in the face of of all of our sins and failures. Praise be to God. Let's pray. God, the question that Israel should have asked is the question we must ask. What right do we have to think that the high and holy and righteous and glorious God would accept us or want us to be in relationship with you? And yet you have definitively answered that with a a moment that is even more decisive than the victory you won over Baal by sending Jesus Christ to die and to rise again in a resurrection victory over death. Praise be to God. May we go forth this week with the joy of what you have done in and through Christ on our behalf. And we pray this in your name. Amen.